It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right, we're back with the run out. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Chris, Chris got a new toy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got this new podcasting device that has these built-in pads so you can do some sound effects, like the morning zoo. All right. I, I can just uh, hear our, our patrons <laughs> unsubscribing, unsubscribing right, right now. Well, I want to I give a shout out to the old Bad Beta podcast, um, which it, uh, occasionally rears its head again. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with that one. Um, but they did at least one episode, um, and I'm not a completist on their, on their catalog, but uh, one of the dudes had a bunch of pads that were ready to go, and he just kept dropping them liberally in the the podcast and it was like awesome stuff like you know actual recordings of like honald going like yeah it's no big deal or whatever <laughs> and it was i thought it was extremely funny but i thought it was maybe one of their high points um because he just would keep derailing the conversation they're um, they're a brilliant podcast they, they do like one episode a year oh uh, yeah um, which but, is but when it comes out it's it's always pretty good yeah and it's that's a smart way to do um a podcast um it's just every once in a while when when the the muse moves you versus having a schedule schedule pot scheduled podcast <laughs> or a drag and we got two of them um anyway but uh i, I want to ask you a question okay you ready hit it chris what do you think uh the definition of a sandbag is a sandbag root a sandbag well i guess a noun or a verb well that's the fun thing about the word it's, yeah. it's it can be um a noun it can be an adjective um so i think the noun version is pretty straightforward okay and um it's it's a root that is basically underrated underrated yeah like it's it's actually much harder than the rating suggests okay as a verb i think it that's like a very i think that's where the real conversation lies and it's how one chooses to sandbag another person right and the motivations that might attend to such a an action, huh? How would I define that? I guess it could be a way of being mean. <laughs> it can be mean. It could also be a way of putting someone in their place who needs to be kind of put in their place, which is sort of mean. Which is mean, but sometimes it could be done in a way, a loving way, I guess. Well, among friends, it's certainly a long-standing thing to do among friends. Mm-hmm. Um, is to try to sandbag each other. Yeah, I mean, th- I think there's like rituals that date back to prehistoric societies of <laughs> of ways of flogging, like the, you know the the cock of the walk in the tribe, and you know bringing exactly. them back down to earth. Um, so I think it's a it go it's just part of nature to mm-hmm. to sandbag as part of na- human nature. Well, I'd add something that might a, a little wrinkle, which I think sort of changes the intent. occasionally or it can change the outcome because i think in like a a, there's another type of sandbagging uh which is when a route is is more dangerous or more run out Mm. than you're than you're implying or or than the grade implies is also uh, i think a a one that plays into these other things quite differently as well um 
and you know the kind of like yeah it's no big deal sort of thing i think like I, for my experience it's the black canyon is sort of rife with that where you're just like you know yeah that route's not that big a deal and then you you know you get up there and it's terrifying sure um you know and i have a friend who was sandbagged in that way my friend alan karn in uh he he's he's a uh British climber, but has lived in France for a long time, and and he he got sandbagged there by Topher Donahue on a route that was that was a lot scarier than was in, implied, and and actually I think Alan still holds a grudge about that because mm. it was I mean it was run out to the point of being extremely dangerous, and so um he's he's had a had a chip on his shoulder about that for a long time. Yeah, is that where you want to go with this? Because that's an interesting aspect to this where you sandbag by not disclosing information. Like right. Topher in this instance right. could have just said, Hey, it's a great route to do, but you should heads up. Like you're going to be strung out the entire time and might die. Yeah. No, I mean, I think Alan has a, has, I don't, I don't think we need to go on, on this. I just wanted to kind of put it as, as part of the, you know, just a, a point, but um, yeah, no, Alan was, it was like legitimately angry mm-hmm. and I think he had a right to be mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, and, and I, and, you know, whatever, we can discuss the psychology of that, but I believe in I know, that Alan. sense, it was a, a malicious, it was sort of a malicious thing to do Yeah, when someone can actually get hurt or killed because right. you're sandbagging them. But there's, um, there's an interesting aspect to that, which is, um, like a plausible deniability aspect to it. Like a lot of times it seems like sandbaggers will not disclose that kind of information because to them it was just no big deal. Right. You know, like the route wasn't dangerous or it wasn't scary and they didn't feel like they needed to share that information. And so, and maybe that was, you know, I, I hate to like invoke like specific names, but just in this case, Topher's, um, that was perhaps how he felt genuinely, like right. wasn't a big deal this right. route. And, um, he didn't think for one second that he needed to um, share that information with Alan. And maybe it could have come from just genuine respect for Alan's climbing skills and ability. Like that's the most um, generous read of that interaction. Well, it's interesting because it also happens. I mean, I guess we'll stay on this for a minute, but it also happens in, in it's funny because it's in the language and, um, you know, again, if we're, we're talking about the black cane, but this could be applied. There's, there's a lot of areas that are sort of known as being, you know, you, you gotta be on, on the lookout and, uh, you know, like what's the place in South Carolina, the white sides or with the really run out slabs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, when you're there, it's like, you can't just, you know, swallow everything verbatim. And, you know, with certain climbers there, you know, you can look for words that they use. Um, like my friend, Mike Pennings, who's, you know, a famous black Canyon guy, like he says, engaging, you know, if you were ask him how, how the route was, he'll say it was engaging and, and engaging. Straight up <laughs> yeah. Horrifying. Which is a way of sandbagging because he's not like saying it's flat out scary. Right. But I just have come to know that that's like, you know, it's kind of like spicy. Spicy could mean a bunch of different things. But in this case, engaging is like, you're like, okay, I'm not doing that route. If, yeah. If, if Mike Pennings was engaged, then you're going to be fucking shitting your pants. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> Because he's like never going to, you know, it's part of the game is you never admit that you were scared. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so. Um, do you think it's a game or do you think it's um like, are, are people doing that in kind of like this good natured, you know, way of 
yeah, that person's probably going to be fine, but they are going to have an experience and I'm psyched to hear them come back from that experience and like be like, Hey, you fucking sandbagged me or you, you know, that was scary as shit. Oh my God. I can't believe I survived or whatever it is. Yes, certainly. And I think, I mean, and it's, again, it's within the context of the black Mm -hmm. and understanding that, but also, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that Sam bagging the verb, you know, it's something that friends can do to each other and sort of get away with. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think it, it, it falls into that realm of like, we all know people who sort of joke or sort of give strangers a little too much shit for the personality. And, and, and it's happened to me where I've gotten shit, the same shit I would get from you or from another person that I climbed with a lot and just laugh it off from someone I don't know as well. And I take it completely the wrong way. And, and they kind of overstep their bounds of familiarity. And I think sandbagging goes with that too. Like, you know, if if you were just walking around the campsite and some somebody who was clearly out of their league a little bit or whatever asked you for beta and you and you chose to like not give it to them or to to sort of not not be specific about the the dangers of the climb then that's you know you've crossed the line into the world where it's it's malicious and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know and it's your ego like overshadowing what these people's needs are versus someone you know that I know or that, you know, knows where we are and what we're doing. Um, and I think that can go for just difficulty too. you know, who you're sandbagging is, you, you know, it, it can cross a line into being a jerk mm-hmm. versus like, okay, this person can handle this or whatever. Yeah. There's also an interesting flip side to this where too much information that you share with someone can be, can be construed as sort of, um, patronizing Mm -hmm. or um paternalistic or something like um as if that person needed to know all of this information because you have such a low opinion of their climbing skills and or whatever um so i could see that there is like a fine line between how you discuss and disclose information about a route i think there's like this interesting thing you you see sandbagging in every avenue of life in some sense like even if you're hiking like you know, the classic sandbag is you pass a hiker on the trail is coming down from the top of the peak or whatever. And you ask how, how much further it is to go. And the answer is always like five minutes or whatever, even if it's like an hour and a half. Sure. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and I love that kind of like stuff. Like you, you, you realize shortly after that, that person was fully lying to you Mm -hmm. and you kind of Mm -hmm. have to smile because it's such a innocuous lie. Well, this also came up because I had I had posted something online and and about grading and about you know this classic thing about how grades don't matter. That's like one of my my stuck in my craw things in climbing. Um, where people are like, eh, the grade doesn't matter. It's like, yes, it does. It it matters a lot, <laughs> and it matters to you even though you're pretending it doesn't. Right. And the reason I brought it up is because I was like, yeah, those same people. As soon as you downgrade one of their hardest climbs, they're going to get super pissed. Right? They're like holding these two opposite things in their brain that it doesn't matter. But if you downgrade my hardest scent, I'm going to be mad. Right. And then within that discussion, somebody brought up sandbags and I was like, okay, well the same thing, whether a route is sandbagged or not difficulty wise, not, not sort of danger or commitment wise also shouldn't matter if grades don't matter. So you can't, again, one of these things where you can't be pissed that that thing sandbagged and it kicked your ass and also go on to talk about how grades don't really matter mm. because obviously it mattered to you that that was misgraded mm-hmm. because that's what a sandbag is mm-hmm. for the most part. 
And it's funny too, because my response was like, yeah, it's funny how no one is mad about a sandbag when they send it. They're only mad about it when it, A, they think they should climb a certain grade and they don't, which is what a sandbag is, right? You, you, you thought like, oh, I climbed 12 A and then that thing kicks your ass and all of a sudden it's a sandbag because your previous notion of who you are as a climber was just shattered by it. Well, it's it's even worse than that because after they send that sandbag 12A, they will do everything in their power to sandbag everyone who comes after them <laughs> totally. to keep it at 12A. Exactly. Because that's what, that's, they got 12A points on that and right. they don't want someone else getting 12B points or right. whatever. So Yeah. And I, I understand the fragility of like your concept of who you are as a climber and how a sandbag route can, can be very you know, difficult for that. But it's funny because somewhere in my, in my climbing, um, I switched over to like, like liking the sandbag Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's, and, and like feeling like its existence is there for a reason. And like, as this sort of check Mm. against, I think what is generally more common, which is the slippage of the grades, right. You know, with newer climbing tending to be easier on the grades just at least in sport climbing and so if we can specifically talk about sport climbing here that's like the 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 i think the purpose or the not the purpose but sort of the value of a of a route at an area that everybody knows is sandbagged but each time the guidebook comes out like i like the resistance of switching it of Mm -hmm. of pulling it down you know and this has been a discussion recently because the rifle guidebook definitely adjusted a bunch of routes that supposedly were sandbagged or or you know harder than the grade sure you know that had stood literally for 30 years that way and finally like this guidebook seems to have finally like caved into the pressure to bring these routes down to to a, a grade that everybody i guess knew they were but it's to me it's okay that that route is not you know what I mean? Like having some roots that aren't quite... Yeah, it's the less bulwark against the yeah. softness of, <laughs> of and soft climbers. Yeah, I mean, I guess like people could um, easily argue that a route is sandbagged, but what if that's just the actual grade and everything else has just gotten softer, you know? like Exactly. How do you know? How do you know? I mean, it's all relative, so it could be that you know, those, those sandbagged routes are actually what the, the real rating is. Like our local area rifle has, has a reputation for having hard grades. And, you know, the person I was talking to was like, well, this is the context is that other areas around here, which are, you know, literally a couple miles by the crow flies from rifle, I think tend to be a little bit softer. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we, I have developed, I know developers here that are trying to like, like bulwark against that and are like rating their roots, you know, sandbagging maybe, or, or some other people would think they're sandbagging because they're like trying to keep them in line with rifle. Corey. Corey. Yeah. And other people who aren't. And like the discussion was, this person was like, no, what has to happen is that since, since rifle is like notoriously hard, we have to like right the ship. Mm. But my argument was like, but, but rifle was the original, Mm -hmm. you know, it was literally some of the first bolted sport climbing in Colorado. So how is it not the standard? Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not the standard compared, I guess, to worldwide. Cause I think it, I think even people from other, like from Spain and stuff come and find that the grades are a little rough there. Mm -hmm. But to me, I mean, I, and I, you've, I've said it on here before. It's like, to me, it's like, that's great. Like we do not need to, to to adjust them 
Well, which would you rather climb? Would you rather climb a route that people, everyone says is soft or one that everyone says is sandbagged? But that's a personality trait. I think to me, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, I I want to climb the hard route. That's interesting. But I I don't think everybody does. Oh, interesting. I I figured everyone would want to would prefer to have the sandbagged route under on their tick list. I mean, but like maybe you're right. Maybe there's a lot of people who prefer the soft one. I, dude, I, I can't, I don't see how we could argue. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we could do a whole show on downgrading, I think would be a fascinating thing too, because there's some historical downgrades mm-hmm. that have caused like serious, you know, consternation within the climate community, right. um, especially the accusation of of downgrading a route after a woman does it. I think is a is a, a popular, sometimes apocryphal story, and maybe sometimes accurate story. But right. um, but yeah, I mean that has to do with the with with a sandbag in a sense. Yeah. Um, but the other direction. Right. But like, you know, I I mean, I, I, that's again my personal feeling is that I would I like that feeling of like getting this, you know getting the smackdown and then like you said having the the sort of tick on your list that everybody knows is a sandbag right you know and i think that like that's the thing is each area has those roots and i don't like i i still go back to this thing is like we if everybody understands it then nobody need, it doesn't need to be righted and again and if it's not sandbagged in a dangerous way then you're like well what about the person who doesn't know the area and they get on it it's like so what like, yeah. so they get their comeuppance that day right? and they don't go home with the easy send. Like, I, isn't that character building? Yeah. Again, as long as they're not hitting the ground or ripping pieces or yeah. whatever we're, we were talking about in the beginning. The guy who does all the 512s in the gym first try doesn't do the 512 at the right. sandbagged area. Right. Yeah. You know, I've watched people saddle up for routes I know are notoriously difficult and, you know. Am I going to go up to them and be like, hey, man, just so you know? Like, no, you're not. You're going to be like, all right, that, let's see what happens. And, you know, There's every no trigger, once in a while. trigger warning for sandbags. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and every once in a while, that dude, like, sends. And you're like, fuck, yeah. Or that yeah. woman sends. And you're like, yeah, that was sick. Yeah. And that, that's what I'll do is the other side of it is I'll be like, that was amazing. Everybody thinks that route's really hard. Like, right. good, you know, way to go. Which is, I think, like a prop. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you just you just walked in here and sent the notoriously hard 12C or whatever. Ironically, there's... But a, usually it goes the other way. There's there's an element of what you're saying that kind of undercuts your point about grades not mattering because, in a sense, they don't matter on a sandbagged route. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but it's just more than the, the grade suggests. And so right. to do that sandbagged 512C, you know, it's more than just doing a 512C anywhere else. Right. Well, and the other thing I think that is funny, and this has happened to me many, many, many times, is that I decide a route is sandbagged because I'm <laughs> having so much trouble with it. Yeah. And it turns out that I'm just doing it really poorly. Right. Right. And, and your you beta know, sandbagged. My beta is terrible. Yeah. I'm sandbagging myself. <laughs> but it's funny to arrive at that conclusion yourself. That's essentially in disagreement with everybody else, but mm-hmm. you've decided that this thing is super sandbagged, seems super sandbagged. And, you know, and then again, like you can walk away mad or you can be like, maybe if no one else thinks this thing is sandbagged, maybe I'm, I'm doing it wrong. Might mm-hmm. be like a good signal to you. Um, I had an experience like that on, um, on a route and rifle where it, it was a route that was considered ironically soft for the grade. It was like an entry level 
uh, root and you just were getting your ass kicked. <laughs> and I got my ass kicked, and I sent I sent all these roots that were harder at that grade, and this was like at my limit right. too. And um, I sent heart roots that were on paper harder than this other one, but then, like after a year of trying this, I finally just tweaked my beta <laughs> and then did the root. right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, sandbagged myself. Yeah. So we've talked about like the noun quite a bit. Like, what's your feeling on? on sandbagging friends and people, do you feel like there's a, a time and a place for it that, that you, you and your wise old years are, or think is appropriate? Or do you feel like that's something from your days of youthful uh, immaturity? I think if you can get away with it, with your friends, it's, it's like, you know, it's like a, a an incredible witticism that you came up with. It's like, the pinnacle of of sort of repartee with your friends if you can pull it off and it's hard because everybody you know you climb together you kind of know all the knowledge but in that case i think you're like the king of the world if you if you sam if you successfully sandbag your friend and that would mean that not only do you put them on something that's hard you know for the grade or hard for them but they fall into that trap of being upset because they didn't send it in, which sounds mean, but again, among your friends, it's the same as giving each other shit. Mm-hmm. And I think it, yeah, I think it's amazing, and mm-hmm. it's not easy to do. But to walk around and and strut around and like try to sandbag strangers is is some weird ego trip. Yeah, and and I and I'm I'm definitely not that person. Like I don't, I am actually probably the oversharer that that gives them you know more unwanted information right than they actually needed. And then back to the danger thing, like at, at my age with the things I've seen, absolutely fucking not to, to do that to a stranger or someone you're just an acquaintance with is I think treads into morally wrong. Okay. And, and to the point of like knowingly doing it versus like Mike Penning's telling me something's engaging. Like right. he, he knows I know, and you know, he does it with a wink and a smile. It's like, yeah, we we're on the same page here. And, and, you know, and there's an old group of climbers for whom that was like just the way you operated at some point, like in Yosemite or wherever, like to to not reveal information was part of the deal. But I think we've moved past that in a lot of ways. But do you think that there's like a power dynamic to it, like a punching up versus punching down um, framing on sandbagging? So it only really is effective or jovial and fun in one direction. Like, uh, Yeah, for sure. Like if I could somehow sandbag Jonathan Segrist, you know, I, I would retire. I'd be like, I did it. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it mentioning him cause he was just here in the driveway, but, uh, but yeah, it's just like, yeah, punching up would yeah. be, you know, and also knowing that like, he's going to, he has this, the, the, the sort of not just the skills, but the constitution to handle it. Right. But I don't know how that would happen because it's like, yeah. where could you find a route that would sandbag Yeah, you'd him? have a hard time finding <laughs> a route to sandbag that guy on. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess if you if you find yourself being sandbagged a lot by your friends, it probably means you're the best climber in the group. Well, there and, you go. And uh, if, on the other hand, if you're not ever sandbagged, congratulations, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like us making fun of Alex Honnold. <laughs> It's only funny because he's the best. Right. You know? Yeah. Don't sandbag us, Arnold. <laughs> Jesse McGahee is Yosemite National Park's head climbing ranger. 
and Timmy O'Neill is a longtime professional athlete, founder of Paradox Sports, and board member of the Yosemite Climbing Association. I've been here for a while. Um, you know, I came here as a dirtbag climber in 2000, right after college, and, uh, you know, spent a month in, in Camp 4, you know, no more than 30 days. That was the limit of camping, so, of course, I was totally following the rules there, and then... Um, out there on day 30. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Got a, time to go down to Joshua Tree. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I... I Started as a, a ranger in 2004, not a ranger, but a, you know, an entrance station visitor use assistant. You can call him a ranger, but, um, and then 2006 was my first year as a climbing ranger and I wasn't, I was a seasonal non-law enforcement and then had a seasonal LE job as a climbing ranger in 2007, got a permanent job in 2009 and, um, have been like kind of bouncing around in either search and rescue supervising the SAR site in Tuolumne for a little while, supervising the SAR site in Yosemite Valley, and now back to uh, supervising the Climbing Ranger program. Jesse, you must have um, crossed over uh, your your time there with um, our friend Lincoln Nels. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mentor of mine. He's a, a really uh, good friend of mine still. Did my first cell-cap route with, with Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse, you've been uh, you've been with the Park Service for a long time. You know, we're here today to continue our conversation about the big wall permits that are being discussed right now for for climbers. But before we get into all of that fun stuff, you've you've spent quite a bit of time in the valley over the last twenty years. You know, what? How do you just kind of characterize the changes that you've seen from a climbing perspective and and through your perspective as a ranger? Yeah, you know that that's a. Uh a big bucket of, of things, but let's just focus in on the climbing perspective. You know, when I first started coming here, it was not the wild west per se, but there, there was still this, this great animosity, I feel like between um, climbers and rangers. And I, I played the game as a climber myself, you know, like uh, trying to like not be seen by the rangers, you know, be on the, the down low. And, and part of that was by not, doing anything that would catch the the eye of the rangers but also just just in general like climbers really wanted to you you guys have experienced that wanted to operate in the shadows and and do their thing and uh not draw any attention and in the last especially with the the facelift and the yosemite climbing association and what ken yeager's done and i think the climbing ranger program starting with lincoln and then continuing with Alf and Brandon Latham and all the other climbing rangers that we, we've employed, Eric Bissell in particular also, um, that relationship has turned much more cooperative. And we've really started to work together. And you don't get this feeling that uh, climbers are getting singled out by rangers just for being climbers. And you're also getting a feeling that, that rangers, a lot of us are climbers as well. And so there's a much, much better uh working relationship between climbers and rangers and that i feel like can be attributed to to both like the yca and the facelift and some of the the climbing ranger program as well as just the the community changing you know there's a lot more climbers that are you know realizing like hey preservation and conservation is the park service goal and it's our our goal as well and uh yeah let's work together to achieve those goals so that's one main thing, but then we can discuss conditions on, 
on the walls, but I, I just wanted to give the overall cultural change. Yeah, and that's also and, interesting. Maybe that's a good segue to just introduce our other guest that we have here today, who's uh, Timmy O'Neill, um, and he's kind of a proto-monkey of the valley, and maybe <laughs> would at one point consider himself as being um, an antagonist of the uh, on the climbing side of the ranger versus climber divide, and is kind of here today to... Um, to echo some of the the points you want to share about the uh, big wall permit system. So Timmy, maybe you could just set up your role in this conversation. Why are you here today? And um, how do you, uh, how do you respond to what Jesse just laid out in terms of the, the changes in the Valley? I am the executive director of the Yosemite climbing association, a role I took in uh, May of this year. I was on the board of directors for a couple of years before that and it's an organization that Ken Yeager, who Jesse mentioned, started uh, 20 years ago. Next year, we'll celebrate our, our 20th anniversary. And Ken started the organization uh, based on his already 10 years of collecting the culture, the artifacts, the history, the stories of climbing, like how important it has been um, in the development of Yosemite as a climbing area, but also as a national park, as a place that people come from all over the world. And... Jesse actually asked me if I wanted to join him on this conversation with you guys, Andrew and Chris, uh, because we have been a partner with the Park Service for, again, almost 20 years in the conversation of how climbing is managed, how climbing is viewed, how climbing is is used, right, or, or the resource, rather. But for me personally, I started climbing in Yosemite when I was 20, so 33 years ago, right? And I've been every year. I live now close in the Tahoe region. And the changes I've seen are just there's more of us, right? There's more people climbing. Climbing is, is more well-known. Um, the advent of the climbing gym and sort of the incubator of inside climbing becoming outside climbing. And there's since there's more of us, there just probably needs to be, you know, a greater degree of education and respect and climbers taking care of it, ourselves, the resource, etc. Um, and today this talk is mainly about getting to that, right? And, and continuing the conversation, you know, this sort of living document of, you know, the park and, and how the park is run and how we use the park. Thanks a lot, Timmy, for, for being here. But, you know, Timmy, I don't know if you were one of the people when I first started in 2006 as a climbing ranger, I would go out to El Cap Meadow and, you know, Dean and Micah Dash, both of who have passed, you know, unfortunately, you know, folks like that that were out in part of the scene, they would literally get up and walk away from me Um they're like, oh, there's the tool. We 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 don't want to talk to that guy. Um, you know, even though I'm, I wasn't there, I'm I'm there to like have a conversation and uh, you know talk about climbing. How how much I love climbing. How much I love the the places that that we climb in. And you know, from a wilderness perspective, and that that has totally changed now. Like I I've, I've not had that experience in years. Anytime I've approached a, a climber, even if they're doing something they shouldn't have. People, you know, treat treat me with respect, and I I hope that they feel like I'm treating them with respect as well. And and the climbing rangers report the the same kind of interactions, whether it's issuing permits downstairs or out in the field. There's there's a a, a level of mutual respect, and I I can't say how how much I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny you guys are talking about that because I I realized like you know in the last couple of weeks. 
I, I sort of have PTSD <laughs> from the olden times, and I I left the valley on a regular basis anyway. Before I think a lot of these changes, by and large, came about. So I kind of realized that I have this like foot stuck in the past of like you know a flashlight in my face <laughs> in the middle of the night in Camp Four. You know, even though I was completely legally a paid you know camper of Camp Four, you know because they woke me up and wanted to see that I was actually paid and shit like that. And so like literally like I should probably go to therapy <laughs> and after therapy, I would arrive like at the permit system being like, this is fine. Like this is totally fine, but I'm like still stuck back there, I think. Um, so it's good to hear, uh, you know, there, there's been this shift and, and I know that it's been going on intellectually. I understand that, but I think emotionally I, I'm like stunted a little bit because you know, Brandon Latham's an old friend of mine. You know, I know all these people and, and you're, a, a, I know that everybody has respect for you, Jesse, and that things have changed. But, um, so anyway, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm dealing with here, you know? Well, so maybe I'll sue the park service for my therapy fees. Or you something should. Like that. <laughs> that would, well, that would be an interesting thing to see how that would go. I would suggest maybe some ketamine uh, therapy before you do that, Chris. <laughs> Uh, as long as a ranger joins me for that, we'll, I'll do it. Wow. Um, anyway, but yeah. moving on, Ket- I just ketamine coffee and camp four. Yeah, <laughs> make it a ketamine, thing. Ketamine yeah. talk. I, we could with, let's hit up. Uh, you know, Jimmy Chen, the Camp Four Collective. I think it's in the making of the the next uh, great. You know, documentary film. Yeah. So Jesse, if you would, um, you know, lay out at least as best as you can, um, what is on the table, what the proposal yeah. actually is from your perspective. And and we'll just move on from there um, just to get sort of the facts and, and the situation out. To tell you the truth, I, I listened to, to uh, the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Jenna and Lance. And that's why I, you know, um, called up or texted Andrew. I was, I was uh, just wanted to, to make sure that we had a, a more full perspective out there to your listeners and and those are the people we want to to engage with you know if people are interested in this topic Mm -hmm. then i really want to hear hear from them and that's why i'm here today if we can all agree that the conditions on the walls right now and in the last 20 30 years kind of there's some unacceptable impacts and then we can move on from there but i can i can go through like the kind of the the issues that we see on the wall. But I think you guys have already discussed that, you know, the trash, sometimes human waste, um, caches on top of LCAP, some, you know, micro trash stuffed in cracks, food storage issues with, um, in terms of bears getting into people's haul bags and other things, maybe at the, at the base of, of cliffs. Um, we still have some instances of people using, uh, power drills, and, you know, by the way, Yosemite still has one of the most permissive uh, bolting regulations in the National Park Service. And I hope it continues that way. The only rule is you have to use a, a, a hand drill and you can, you know, establish routes. You can drill bolts. So, yeah, things like that, respecting the, the regulations that we we have. And those are leave no trace ethics. They're, they're all our, our norms as climbers that have been established by climbers, um, such as using poop tubes and packing out our human waste, just like river uh, trips have done for, for years and years. A lot of those, those ethics have been established by climbers. And, and what, we're, what we've always tried to do is use education and outreach to 
kind of get that word out to climbers like okay the, these are our norms these are these are what um the, this is the clean way to climb this is the way to to um preserve wilderness and to to keep wilderness character as it is but i i do want you guys um chris and andrew and timmy and myself i want us all to agree that what those impacts that i've outlined and that's you know some of them i'm not going to just like go into them in depth but if if we can all agree those impacts are there and that they're unacceptable then we can move on to the next part of the conversation which is what should we do about those impacts um yeah yeah, yeah. no no we totally i i agree i totally okay. agree yeah absolutely well i would, I would offer just zone. one pushback um on on that i mean there's there's a cost of um you know being out being outside and using a, an outdoor resource. And when, you know, those costs come in the form of footprints right. or, you know, any kind of travel. And so there's no matter what you do, just being in a place, unless you want to lock it up and put it behind a glass right. cage is going to have some kind of consequence, you know, some kind of impacts that are come from humans. Now there's, yeah. of course, there's a million different ways to respond to that from climber cleanups you know at the end of the season to 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 just outright ban so that the the you don't have to clean up the mess at all and so i would push back and just say that you know the problems to the degrees that they exist ought to be looked at with that sort of realistic understanding of just what it means to have people outside using a resource. And so if the, if the baseline assumption that we want to start from is that climbers have a right to be in Yosemite climbing the rock, then from that, you just have to accept that there are going to be, you know, impacts that, that we can deal with. We can, you know, and not like even people who have the most perfect leave no trace principles are still inevitably going to forget that one little wrapper that fell out of their pocket or, you know, so it doesn't have to be malicious intent or just born of um, ignorance about how to use a resource. It can be simply just from the fact that there's usage. And, um, and so the idea that there is a solution that would, make impacts is you know zero that doesn't seem like a realistic proposition either and so i I would just qualify yes i i i want to see fewer impacts on el cap i want to see fewer as little impact on the beauty of yosemite as possible but i also want there to be a a, an acknowledgement that this is just the cost of of um, being outside and and playing yeah and andrew i really appreciate the those sentiments and i i absolutely agree there is going to be a certain level of impact that is just going to come with with that access. And uh, I'm really proud of the trail work we've done in Yosemite from Cathedral Peak to the base of El Cap to Washington Column. Chris, if you haven't been here in a little while, I'd love to take you on a tour of all the stuff that the climbing rangers are doing. And, you know, social trails are one of those impacts that, yeah, of course, there's going to people have to get to the access trail. So we as an agency are responsible to provide, you know, sustainable access to those, those climbing locations. And so we're, we're doing that. And, uh, um, so the, the, there is a certain level of that, you know, I've, I've dropped micro trash unintentionally. And I would say most of the climbers that ha- even have heavy impact and leave it like a huge cache or have this like total diarrhea blowout on, uh, you know, 
at Camp Six when they've run out of of uh, wag bags and don't have anywhere else to put. Like, I don't think any anybody is really not. I shouldn't say anybody, but most people aren't aren't intending to ha- leave caches behind for years. They're not intending to to have like you know a huge impact on the wall while they're climbing. If they didn't know there was a peregrine closure and they climbed right through it, uh, a nest, they weren't intending to, to bother those peregrines. So, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I want to say I heard something at Joshua Tree um, years ago, a Climber Coffee in 2002 or so, maybe it was 2001. A, a ranger was like, do you guys think that climbing in Joshua Tree is a privilege or do you think it's a right? And in my immediate gut feeling on any of this is public lands and it is a right to to be out there and to be you know doing your thing in a public lands and so i would absolutely say that to to say it's a privilege i i think you know these are our lands you know we we have a right to have access in and you know our pilot program for permits we didn't have a, we don't have a quota um we're maintaining access and i'm i would go even further and saying like by by having a little bit more focused management on climbing we are maintaining access even even more than we would if if uh you know a land manager that didn't have a climbing ranger program looked at like hey there's all these unacceptable impacts climbers are putting up roots and they're putting bolts in and they're leaving caches and all this stuff we're just going to like you know ban it or do something drastic like that and by engaging with you know Yosemite Climbing Association and Access Fund, we have American Alpine Club and all of our our allies on on different things. I feel like we are are solidifying climbing as a as a part of the story of Yosemite, and it's celebrated by the Park Service now instead of like hush hush. You know that we have a a climbing exhibit that Yosemite Climbing Association helped with us tremendously. Can in particular in the visitor center now. It's it's awesome. People love it. People love to to check all that out. So yeah, I, I agree. There, there's going to be some impacts and we're going to continue to provide access. So Jesse, you know, I've been thinking about this more um, since, we, you know, since we're, we were leading up to this interview. I feel like maybe you're positioned in a place that's sort of uh, in between climbers and, and the higher ups or whoever yeah. the overlords are. Um, each park has, has them. Um, and they don't always have a, a, a close connection to climbing. Um, and they can react in a bunch of different ways of, of being like, this is a tiny user group and therefore it doesn't really impact the park or it's a tiny user group. Why are we like, letting down our our regulations for this meaningless little tiny user group you know there's some perspective in in between and i feel like maybe you're looking at this this system you know i'm I'm sure you were part of creating it at least you know Mm -hmm. the details and what needed to be done um as 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 that as this like compromise or this act of doing something uh you know constructive that puts a stop gap between somebody that might come down with a draconian we're shutting this down or we're, we're banning all these parts of it or, or something like that. Is that sort of like what you as climbing rangers have tried to do is 
again, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a compromise. Right. It's not quite the right word, but a way of, of being proactive in the face of, you know, a, po- the possibility of, of a much more, you know, like said, draconian or, or difficult thing coming. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd absolutely say there's this there's a sense. And ever since I started working um, for the Park Service, I've heard over and over again from from different people in management, like, why is it that this activity has provided all these exceptions? Um, and that feeling of like, okay, this activity doesn't need a permit, but all these other activities do. And kind of the, the premise behind that from their perspective is like, are, are climbers uneducatable? Because the, the climbing, the permits, wilderness permits in general are there to, to give climbers like mandatory um, education or to give uh, users mandatory education. So if you're a backpacker, you're getting like the leave no trace talk and you're getting this. These are your expectations. This is where you can have a fire and this is where you can't like all, all of those things. It's not just to, to permit people for, you know, no reason there it's for education. And then for backpacking, it's, it's also to control crowding because, you know, we have a quota attached to that. And so from other people's perspective, they're like, well, what, what is it about climbing that are are they doing a better job of of you know limiting their impacts and all these things and and I would argue that, that the main reason that we've never done a permit stretching all the way back to the the draft climbing management plan that was never signed is is not necessarily that um, the impacts weren't there it's just that it's very difficult to do <laughs> it's a hard thing to figure out how to manage this really really interesting an awesome activity of like big wall climbing. Like you can't, people aren't going to have a start day. They're like, okay, I'm going to start on June 1st and I'm going to end on June 5th. You know, like you get there and it's raining on June 1st and your partner's like, actually, I'm too scared to climb this, this route. You're going to have to find somebody else. Um, you get a core shot in your, your static line. There's a hundred different reasons why that's not going to work. And, uh, or you don't, have, you haven't really figured out the techniques yet and you need a couple more days. And so all these things make it much more complicated and you don't have necessarily the staff to uh, go out there and patrol those areas. Backpacking is a lot easier to figure out. You know, you can send out rangers walking into the field to patrol those areas and make sure that whatever their system is, is, is working. So the self-policing by by climbers that has been advocated over the years, even from the, you know, from Yosemite's perspective, the, the park services perspective is, is almost because that we didn't have the tools to try to do it. And I would say that, that now, you know, we have a more robust climbing ranger program and we potentially had, had those tools to be able to, to see what it would look like to, you know, try to like be a little more proactive instead of reactive. And, and, you know, the reactive is like scheduling cleanups. And I've done like six cleanups of camp six, you know, gone down there multiple times over the years with haul bags. Um, you know, we've, we've used helicopters during rescues to, to pull out sling loads of some of that, um, junk down there. Um, we've done top, you know, top of all cap cleanups almost every year as a part of the facelift and the climbing rangers and climbing stewards have helped organize that with Ken and Timmy and others. Yeah. So that's the reactive way. And a proactive way is like, Hey, like, let's see if it works to give 
all climbers um, that same education, you know, specific to the route they're doing, specific to, um, you know, their experience level and see if there's, if we actually get some uh, positive outcomes. And I would argue there's also, you know, several advantages for climbers in getting a permit. Timmy, just to bring you into the conversation, um, you know, we noted in the beginning that, you know, you've been there for a long time and, and gone from complete dirtbag monkey to, to, you know, being part of the system <laughs> as it were, you know, and, and allied with the, with the, uh, with the park service on this, um, which is, you know, I mean, probably kind of fascinating if we'd have run into you in 2000 and told you that this was going to happen, you, you probably, you know, what a chucked a blown out moccasin at me or whatever but yeah so where where are you on that perspective of how this fits into sort of the new paradigm of of may you know uh jesse just kind of dropped into that he believes this will help maintain access in the sense that it'll you know if we can fix some of these problems it'll stave off a, a more draconian action somewhere down the line how do you feel about uh where this permit system fits into you know your idea of climbing and access to climbing and in uh, Yosemite? Well, I think there's always been conflict between um, those who enforce the rules and those who flaunt them or don't necessarily want to follow them, right? And that inherent tension can behave or be demonstrated in different ways. For me personally, I've never had a problem, right? I've always been very low-key, uh, respectful, going there for the purpose of climbing and for caregiving, um, whether it's my climbing partner, the resource, our community at large, big time, right? I'm into positivity and having communication dialogue. Uh, I know that um, personally through my wife, right? I mean, we got to talk. Like if there's a problem, you don't just want to, you know, get defensive and, and storm away. And when Lincoln Else became the first climbing ranger in Yosemite, I was like, cool, smart, good idea not to disguise a, a ranger and have him infiltrate the climbing community, but to again, create dialogue, right? And it's a continuum, right? I mean, I, I first started climbing in Yosemite 33 years ago um, and had no idea what I was doing, but was so amazed and made mistakes, um, not only dangerous ones as far as climbing techniques, you know, having the name Young Stupid Tim and Fatal Tim, um, but also making mistakes around, you know, how to re use the resource or, you know, overstaying my welcome and things of that nature. But I, I just feel that as far as, you know, doing the right thing, Chris and Andrew and Jesse, like, do you do the right thing when no one's watching? And that's what happens up there on LCAP. You're by yourself or you're with your partner and you decide to stash your trash in the crack. It's like so lame or you leave your water bottles partially filled because you're leaving water behind for somebody else. When in reality, maybe you're just being a little lazy. And the irony is we're already going there to do one of the hardest things ever to climb these huge big walls that the undertaking and, and the amount of prep and all of it. So just to do a little bit more hard work and carry it all out. Um, but I think as far as the continuum of rules and regulations um, coming into play, um, we look at Dave, who is running the wilderness program in Yosemite and, and Chris and Andrew, you guys weren't there, but we had a town hall at facelift this year and Dave runs the wilderness program. And he did a really great job of setting the context around how small of an area we're talking about and really how precious wilderness is, 
right, of the land mass in the 48 contiguous. It's less than 3%. And Yosemite's big walls are wilderness, right? They were designated in the mid 80s um, as wilderness. And the point of protecting those places is so that they stay untrammeled. They stay as clean and as, you know, in their original state and pristine, etc. And Going back to Andrew's earlier comment too on, you know, zero impact, I think that that's impossible, right? Of course, because that would mean no one was using them. So there'll be chalk, there'll be uh, rock that gets chipped through using cams, um, there'll be inadvertent trash left, uh, there'll be all of those things, but it's not to be perfect, but to, to be good, right? And I'm concerned about whenever there's new regulations coming into place that may hamper my ability or the ability of the YCA and all climbers um, to be able to use the resource. But I think it's about dialogue. I mean, I think being at the table to have the discussion, to be invited in, to uh, represent uh, climbing is is important. And the biggest thing is commenting on this. This is a call to comment. We have until November 16th to say, Chris and Andrew and Jesse, how we feel as individuals and how we feel as a climbing community. We get to say what our expectations are, what our hopes are, what our concerns are. And that is open and going right now. So I think for the biggest thing for me is comment on it. If you're concerned, we need to hear from you. And you can do that all the myriad ways online. You can go to the YCA, to the Access Fund, the American Alpine Club, and find the portal um, via the NPS site where you can comment. Yeah, the um, the interesting thing about this whole issue is, as I said in the last episode, I find myself struggling to come up with a, a very good reason as to why climbers should have this special treatment. But that's kind of just other than that's been the historical norm that we've all come to enjoy and, and expect for ourselves. But some of the things about the proposed permit system do bug me, and um, and in the spirit of discussion, I'd I'd love to just like kind of draw out a few of those those more minute things. Um, one of them is that the idea that climbers need to run through the uh, you know kind of meet and greet permit rigmarole before doing every single wall seems kind of onerous in a way that doesn't really solve the, the the bigger issue like to the degree that how many times can you tell someone not to leave trash on the wall i mean some of these things really should just require one conversation and so is that on the table jesse is that some, i mean can is there a limited version of what the, the permit system is that's that's on the table in a, in a legitimate way that climbers who are maybe skeptical of the comment system or just feel like they're pissing into the wind by by pushing back on this, Tell, give us a sense of of how my, how open people are to to new ideas. Yeah, like let's let's definitely dive into that stuff because I I think you know for the rest of our time we should really be discussing like what what are some of the options on the table and that and that's probably the, the main reason you'd want me to be here today. And uh, you guys are going to be shocked by this, but one option is definitely to go back to the way it was. Um, we have not, contrary to what's out there, we have not shut the door on no permits. If people want to comment on not having permits, they need to also provide other other types of solutions to to uh, kind of bring the impacts down to, to an acceptable level. We're not going to get to, to zero. But we are, you know, we are definitely leaning towards having a permit system. Um, one thing I can say is that that permit system would, would not be, it would not have a quota um, if we were going to 
have a quota, um, we would have to probably do a climbing management plan to really, really kind of dive into like what, what are, where are we seeing crowding? Because quotas are all about crowding. And, um, you know, we see crowding on Washington Column a little bit on the South Face or on uh, Dinner Ledge area, and we see it on the nose. But outside of those couple areas in um, a couple weeks here and there in May and October, there's not crowding. So um, at this point, the cost benefit of a quota is is not there. So we're um, we're not going to have a quota. Um, but some of the other things that we've talked about, and you brought that up right there, like having people um, come in every time, that's definitely been discussed. And if, if that's something that climbers are really, really interested in, you know, having some way that you can get that climbing education um, one time, um, every few years or something like that, and then print your permit at home. That's totally a, a possibility. And, you know, we also have a, you know, the self-registration program and that is off season. When that self-registration would happen is also would be on the table. So right now it's, you know, November through April. And we're also seeing that there's not as much wall use in July and August and climbers have known that, you know, it's super hot. Now it's also sometimes really smoky. So for us, the cost benefit of having a ranger, um, a climbing ranger issue these permits in the middle of the summer, you know, that's potentially not there. So we're thinking of it from our, our point of view also, like what's the, what's the best use of our time and resources, taxpayers, time and resources, our, you know, Yosemite Conservancy, who helps fund our climbing rangers, their resources, you know, those those are a lot of our considerations. And that's really the access and the ease of getting a permit and not having to go to the window every time. Then all of a sudden you're if you're we are gonna have a permit system and you have to print it out at home, then that brings us closer towards having ha- likely having to use um recreation.gov. And I've also heard a lot of people like don't want us to to use that system because they don't want to feed into a company that is going to get some of those fees from monetizing the the climbing permits. So it's a lot a lot easier for us not to use. Um, we might have to use it anyway. I'm I, I'm asking those questions pointedly because I hear that feedback. But I um, I can tell you it's a, it would be a lot easier for us to not have that interface with Recreation.gov if we're issuing the permit self-registration are in person only um, because we don't, you don't have the personal information out there on, on the, uh, you know, internet. And that's the primary reason we've been mandated to, to use that system like recreation.gov. It's not the only one, but is, is protect people's personal information. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of like those discussions. Okay. Like, is it really important not to, to have to inconvenience your trip? And if you're coming from the Bay area, you have two weeks off a year and you're having to use an extra day to come get a permit. Yeah, I get that. That's tough when, if you could have printed it at home or could we have like a self-registration booth booth at bigger flat entrance station right there at the wilderness center um, at, at the entrance and people drive in and they fill out their self-registration right there um, in three in the morning, get down to the Leaning Tower or LCAP and start their climb in, in that way. I think those are the kinds of things. We we don't have a specific, like, we haven't decided um, outside of what I said, if we are going to do a permit system, there's not going to be a quota at this time. And when we say future, that means 
you know, climbing management plan and beyond, which is in my experience, we've talked about doing that since the nineties. I'm, I'm not holding my breath that that's going to happen in five years or, or less, you know? So yeah, the feedback that we want is like, okay, if you're, if you're solid in the no permit, I, I don't want to have any permits. I want to hear what are some other solutions to um, be proactive and not reactive. I don't want to hear people be like, schedule more cleanups. <laughs> I'd, I'd really prefer that we get to a point where climbers, you know what I mean? Like that, I've, I've heard that even from my own staff. They're like, we should use our resources by just spending more time in the field cleaning up. And I'm like, come on, these are adults that, you know, like Timmy's going to experience this pretty soon. And I don't know if you, Chris and Andrew, if you have kids, but you clean up after your, your children for several years. And by the time they're 15, I don't have a 15 year old, but I have a five year old and an eight year old. I'm going to be really annoyed at 15 if I'm still cleaning up after my kids. And I, I just feel like we really should be promoting a way to like establish norms, leave no trace norms and a, and a way for us to get the information out there that's up to date on, you know, like what are our fire regulations? Where are the peregrine closures? We, we give wag bags out every day. We're running out of wag bags almost every, uh, you know, we have the John Connor and the Yosemite climbing steward organization is, you know, pays for the wag bags. And, you know, we give them at, at a, a lower rate than anywhere else. And that, that's an opportunity for, for folks to get out there and, and do the right thing proactively, but we still have problems with human waste here and there, and we, we can do better. So anyway, getting a little off, off topic, but just want to drive people's comments towards like, what are their preferences? If you, you know, really want no permits, give us a reason or alternatives. If you're accepting of permits, or even if, if uh, you want no permits, but you realize it's probably, we're probably going to have permits, um, then let's hear what your, your preferences are on, on that. And if you're like, whatever it takes to not do recreation.gov for these reasons, please do it. If it's more like, I would love to have access at home and it's not going to have a quota and I'm willing to, to, you know, pay a small fee to be able to print that permit at home and, and watch it, watch a few, uh, cool videos that YCA and access fund American Alpine club or, or other entities, um, help us produce. And you watch those at, at home and, and like, okay, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do in Yosemite. Um, and you print your permit and you go to your wall and you don't have to like figure out parking in Yosemite village and go direct. If that's your preference, let us know that too. Just a tiny bit of sort of philosophy or, or get your comments on this. Um, you know, the education thing, it's the thing we hear, you know, the access fund, education, education, and, you know, building on what Andrew said about, well, you can educate all you want and there's yeah. still going to be some shit out there. Um, you know, I mean, I understand the need for this permit system to a certain extent. And, and I'm, like I said, over the last couple of few weeks, I've softened a bit, but there's part of me that's just like, you know, it's like a, it's like a big system that's, you know, the, I, I question a little bit of the effectiveness of it. And I say that because like when we're talking about those people stuffing their, their trash, cause they're, they're strung out and the, and the, the you know, I, I don't think most people, you know, in the country know that like throwing your McDonald's out the window of your car is the, not the right thing to do, but mm. they do it anyway. And, and if we're talking about those stressed out people who, who 
can't handle themselves or, you know, when it comes to the stashes on top of El Cap, like we're not talking about Betty and Al from Kansas (laughs) who've been planning their nose trip for the last two years. Go down and talk to the SAR team because yeah. a bunch of them belong to those guys, you know, and that, and we just know yeah. that. And we know that the people who are up there banging out these routes yeah. are, are experienced climbers and therefore have gotten this quote-unquote yeah. education. They've decided not to buy into it. Um, well, and then just, you know, saying also that I mentioned this on the last podcast that El Cap, when I started climbing on it in the 90s, was way more gross than it is now. And somehow we, we as climbers, you know, and it took a while and it wasn't any specific thing, but we as climbers did change that idea that you could shit yeah. in a bag and throw it off. And it just changed. I mean, it changed while I was climbing there and half the people, when I kind of was in my wall phase, about half the people were using poop tubes and about half weren't. And those halves that wasn't were in fact primarily some professional climbers and primarily yeah. old climbers that were stuck in the old way. But we we managed to change it. And, you know, so I mean, I, mean, I guess a, maybe a comment from both of you guys on what kind of faith you do have in this education process yeah. to change that culture, because that's really right. how this all kind of goes. Chris, uh, let me push back a little bit, right? Um, it might have been the way it was okay. years ago on the with the SAR team, but I, we have not seen any uh, like SAR caches. And I was I was just up on top of El Cap on Wednesday. There wasn't a single cache. I mean, we did do a cleanup during the facelift on on uh, September twenty mm-hmm. first, and I ended up I cited somebody that had that cache, and they they were really gracious about it. They were like, "Yes, mea culpa, I fucked that up. I should shouldn't have left that mm-hmm. since last May." Um, and you know, we're, we are like seeing some, some solid changes. There's, we restored all the, the, uh, fires up on, or the fire rings on top of El Cap in, in 2019 and 2020. And none of those have come back. All right. So probably, well, no, I'm dude. saying like, <laughs> sounds like you got it. Uh, you right. got it handled. I'm saying, it, <laughs> great. Well, we're, we're throw the permit system yeah, out. So we're good. I'm, I'm saying maybe the permit system <laughs> is having some of those effects. Maybe it's more just the, the fact that, okay, Jesse's going to write you a ticket if you leave it a cash or, you know, some of the other climbing rangers, Cam or some of the other, mm-hmm. um, LE Rangers might, but actually it's only going to be probably like me and Cam that would be up there on top of, of uh, El Cap or the base of Haftum doing enforcement activities. And that, we don't enforce it, the, you know, we don't write tickets to climbers very much, um, but you'd be surprised how much climbers have been like, you guys need to write more tickets, you know, like don't let these guys get away with this. It's they are using the walls for their own um, enrichment and earnings, and then they they leave stuff for you guys and the taxpayer to clean up. And, and so we have been doing a little bit more of that. And you're you're absolutely right, Chris, when you say that um, conditions on the walls are are improving. Um, that there's less instances of people leaving micro trash. The human waste issue is as uh, um, the culture has changed a lot on that. And just the amount of trash that you find at the base of Velcap is is a lot less. You know, people are doing a lot better job of, you know, storing their food at the base of walls. We haven't had to put down a, a bear that has gotten tons of food at, at the base of Cap in years. We used to have to do that um, because those bears got really aggressive. And they're like, you know, people would bring their cash up or their, their first load up. And so, yeah, there there are a lot of improvements. And 
it's not that the problem is solved, but it's, I want people to think of like, okay, let's get to a place where we as climbers can be like a shining example of like, you can do this expedition level activity and be as leave no trace as possible. We're always going to have some impacts, like Andrew said, but we're going to be a an incredible incredible example for climbing in the rest of the world and other other users. Well, I, I remember being uh, climbing El Cap in the early two thousands, and then you know Lincoln comes on, and, and I remember people were getting fined, uh, Chris, for mud hawking right? For dropping excrement um, straight to the ground, right? Out of themselves, right? I mean, I remember there was somebody who was fined. And so I think it did start to turn the tide that there's a penalty for it. And it's just like disgusting. It's the wrong thing to do, right? It's easy to do, but it's the wrong thing to do. And as far as like the future of, of what's happening, I think it's really key for us to know that you can go online and you can comment and your comment matters. There's the planning environment and public comment, right? At NPS, you can go through the access fund and find it. You can come through the YCA to find it, but we have until the 16th of November and climbing and climbers have always done a great job of not only caring, but talking about it, of commenting, of saying, hey, here are my concerns. These are my expectations. This is what I want to see happen. Uh, for me personally, I don't want a permit system. I, I don't want to have to be educated on something that I'm already doing. I do the right thing. The irony is, as we, as I mentioned, do the hardest thing ever of going up that vertical 3,000 feet and just to make it a little bit harder to bring your human waste up with you and do your best to carry all of your trash up and over the mountain and back down and put it where it's supposed to be. I think it's an ongoing education. Um, human nature, maybe we're lazy. Maybe we, we take the easy way out often, right? Like you said, Chris, we throw that McDonald's trash out the window. Um, there will be more trash to always clean up because there will be more people consuming and accidentally or purposely leaving it behind. But I know that we as climbers can do a better job and the better job that we do, the less likely it is that somebody has to come and say, Hey, you're not doing a good enough job. If, if we're in the house of the National Park Service, which we are, then we have to abide by those rules no matter if we like it or not. And I'll be on both sides of that being, you know, the guy who's trying to get away with it. And then the guy who's trying to follow it as best I can. It's a continuum. That's why that word has two use in it for you and you and you and you and all of us, right? It's up to all of us. <laughs> Do you write that or <laughs> it just came to me divine um, intervention. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> Well, I just want to say that I'm uh, I'm grateful to have this discussion. As you as you mentioned, it's a debate. It's a it's a discussion, a conversation that we're having right now. And I think what's great is that we have this um, grace period to to offer our opinion. Um, every climber out there can can go onto the Park Service website. We'll provide links um, and so forth to to make a comment on this um, on these permit ideas. Um, Jesse, I feel like we are. I find myself feeling pulled to have another conversation with you on this show at some point to discuss, um, you know, the, cl the climbing management plan that you referenced and, and bolting is another topic that has been uh, of concern around J tree and, and potentially Yosemite in the future. So yeah, I, I appreciate you being on the show. I'd love to have you, uh, have you back on to discuss some of these, these topics. 
Well, how about this? You know, once the uh, public comment period um, ends at, in November 16th, you know, we're going to have some time to uh, internally in our, our work group to put together what, what we feel like is the best plan to present to uh, um, the superintendent's office and our chief ranger, et cetera. And uh, yeah, so we're, our, our work group that includes uh, Dave Hansen, who's our, our wilderness uh, manager, and uh, several other people in our, our branch and Brandon Latham, some other folks that are climbers, our work group will put together what we think is, you know, the best plan. But I, I'd be more than happy to come on and discuss like, hey, th- these are some of the comments that we received, you know, from climbers and be like, this is this is the, the range. And if it would probably help me a lot to like kind of key in on like, okay, <laughs> let's have a discussion. Let's get some, let's get Chris to, to push back and be like, Hey, you know, like think about this. And Andrew, if you're, if you're struggling on right. in just help me put in, put things into perspective. And if Timmy's willing to do that too, uh, you know, that, that could help me and it could help uh, climbers to kind of understand, okay, this is the feedback that we received. And this is the, this is, these are some of the critical things that they have. And then maybe they'll understand why we decide what to do um, or why we decide to do what what we're deciding what to do it's not going to be set in stone next year regardless um you know just like backpacking permits changes every year in in yosemite if we decide to have permits for uh climbing overnight climbing that's probably going to to look a little different every year or two the boundaries of that is what we're going to establish you know the boundary of like Yes, you have to have a permit. That would be one thing. And you're not going to have um, a quota would be another thing. And then, you know, some of the, some of those other details are, are what we're hoping to establish. And, uh, you know, the delivery methods and things like that are going to be subject to change just set, to set everybody's expectations up for that. We should do like a Kimmel thing where they do the read the mean tweets. <laughs> Um, we'll just have you come on and, and read the comments. Oh yeah, no, there'll be <laughs> there'll, there'll be, be like, some. Uh, climber sixty nine sixty nine says fuck you. Um, let's see, climber, <laughs> you know, old climber one hundred one just has a middle finger icon. Let's see, let's move on down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, constructive comments, please. Uh, you know, it's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, for sure, and you know. Um, so I, I quoted Conrad during our Yosemite facelift town hall, the live town hall, because he was there. I was like, okay, thanks, Conrad Anchor, for coming here. He's he's somebody that is, you know, obviously a solid advocate for preservation and wilderness and for climbing and for being being a monkey, being who you, who you want to be. And that that's still really critical to me, too. Like the culture of like climbers being able to be exactly who they want to be is is really awesome but i also want climbers to be like okay we want to do it in a responsible way and in conrad uh he, one of his quotes that i really like he says the summit is what drives us but the climb itself is what matters and for me that's a lot of that is the style that you get up there with the people that you're climbing the mountain with you know you're not just going with anybody. You want to go with somebody you, you really want to spend that those days with. And uh, just that whole experience on the wall is really what, what should matter. And it's not just like get to the top at all costs. And uh, however we, we can get climbers to realize that that's the, the critical thing, I'm okay, no, no matter what, what the 
what that solution is. Babsy Zangirl and Jacopo Larcher are two of the best and most inspiring climbers in the world. You know this. That's like saying the sky is blue or that pizza is delicious. And on this month's bonus for Patreon rope guns only, Babsy and Yokopo give a rundown of their recent third ascent and first female ascent and first flash of eternal flame on Trango Tower. Always, uh, it was always hard to get started for me. So the first uh, three, four hours of the day were hard on me and then it got, got better, luckily. But I couldn't sleep during the night, so I slept uh, not more than two or three hours during the night. The rest of it, I uh, played Tetris on my phone because there was nothing to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like always wondering why a couple slept like a baby and I, I couldn't fall asleep up there. It was, it was so hard to sleep and yeah, now I'm a professional Tetris player. <laughs> You can listen to this full episode by going to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and becoming a rope gun today. You get bonus material and also support the runout's ability to push back the status quo without the blunt edge of sponsorship mucking it up. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the spray. On today's final bit, we have a reading by former guest Lucas Roman from his book, The Greater Fool, Brad Gobright, and the Blinding Light of Originality. Brad was one of the boldest and best climbers of his generation, but died in a climbing accident in 2019 at the age of 31. The Greater Fool is an astoundingly intimate portrait of Brad through the eyes of not only the author, but Brad's friends, parents, and community. You can order a copy of Lucas Roman's The Greater Fool at D'AngeloPublications.com. For all the glory Brad found from the transient life in 2011, he still carried much of the same inner tension within. Pamela and Jim worried from home as their son flew with the wind, anxiously awaiting news which only came infrequently at best. On occasion, Brad would call, telling him of a new climb, a first ascent, or a giant link-up he had done, talking of high feats in a burgeoning community of friends, the kind of news that made their hearts soar with pride. Stories which they told to friends and family at church as much as at the dinner table. Inspired, they rode the mighty and vicarious coattails of their son. Other snippets, though, the rough-and-tumble sections where he wrote back about a near-death incident, about financial, relationship, or even health problems, stole whatever faith they had in his process. For as many of those proud, reflective mornings Pamela and Jim had at the coffee table, burning bright with inspiration, they were always the equivalent night spent pining in fear and bewilderment. Relationships, particularly of the intimate order, had baffled Brad his entire life, and while for many years he wouldn't have considered commitments beyond climbing, those years had passed. Brad was not simply an aloof, absent-minded anomaly of life. As a climber, he did have tunings that would confound most of us. He had a certain detachment of existential fear that many of us are weighed down by when on the sharp end, but that was not true of him entirely. Brad was not a fool for life. However much he struggled for concepts that others might take for granted, he was a human being, of course, a person longing for connection to more than rocks alone, to more than the court of jesters and raconteurs that filled the campfire circles by night. Brad longed for love. 
In February of 2012, Brad had an awakening. He'd been in Boulder for a few weeks, and for nights on end, he'd been sleeping in his beater, second-iteration Honda Civic, the one that had the busted window and the cardboard filler. Without a free place to stay or a means to pay for one, he often parked his car near the hills of Chautauqua Park, where he would run free solo laps at the famed Flatirons each morning. But the bitter, biting cold, at times down to negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit, was not something he could overcome. Those nights, long as winter in the north, were desolate places for him to consider his path. With so many houses aglow in the nearby neighborhoods, all their chimneys smoking, Brad was forced to ponder more than he cared to. Brad shared that one morning, as he parked just beside an elementary school, he woke up to a batch of children walking past him, laughing, talking, carrying on with their lives in warm coats, with their backpacks on and sack lunches in hand, as only children do. Suddenly awoken emotionally, Brad froze in awe. Something, perhaps either the tenderness and undeniable innocence of it, or the way it was all framed by the sharpest beams of morning light, bankrupted him on the spot. His eyes flooded with tears that he only kept off his cheeks out of a desire to not blink. He couldn't miss one second, let alone look away, even if he wasn't sure why. Perhaps the emotional breakdown was on set by the week of Arctic cold, all alone in his car. But regardless of the cause, Brad saw an epiphany in those children that was as powerful as any ray of light he'd seen in the high spaces of the outside life. There was a preciousness in it that he had not expected, a revelation nested in something so basic, so everyday that he longed for it. Alone in that car with frosted windows and the fog of his erratic breath, Brad wept. Emotionally undone, overwhelmed by the contrast these schoolchildren showed him to his life, he surrendered any pretense and let the flood of tears free. Brad wanted more. More than the rocks and campfire stories, more than what the photo albums that he'd gone out of his way to show me from his laptop could give. A week later, in a post online, Brad shared that his life, quote, really couldn't be any more unromantic. That was followed a week later by another post where he simply said, quote, Boulder is great, but for the past few months I've been feeling kind of aimless. Of course, Pamela had a sense of where his heart was. Even as others commented online, urging Brad to pour himself further into climbing and assuring him that romance and all its trappings was the errand of fools, Pamela knew her son was unfulfilled. Because of that, she despaired. But Brad went in the only direction available, or at least the only direction familiar, and kept climbing. By the end of the month, he had scored every route on the Rincon Wall at El Dorado Canyon, a stout collection of historic and dangerous trad climbs, under his tally. Most of the routes, apart from being hard as nails, were established by his heroes, a fact that would have made him feel at least partially on course. The routes were also reputed for the headspace they required as they were not only hard, but had hard consequences. While Brad managed fear in a manner better than most, he was not absolved from it. He knew when danger was close, and he understood that he was courting it. This is an interesting fact to bear in mind, because whether he was driven simply to be his best, or by the emptiness he may have been running from, this would become among his boldest seasons on a rope. just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalous. 
And you can reach me at Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot, dot com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. 